You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want it clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax. That's right. Have it looking real spiffy. Wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush, and spot-free rinse and vacuums as well. If you're like me, you have a dog. I have a golden retriever. She sheds so much. So I need the vacuums at Tommy's Express Car Wash, and boy, do they have them. They do them right. That's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's Express Car Wash. And don't forget to download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's at Tommy's Express Car Wash. Support for today's episode comes from Manscaped. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you probably need a gift for a hairy dad. Make your dad proud this year and get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package. You know what they say, like father, like son. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package is perfect for you and the dad in your life to complete your grooming game. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming, and the brand-new shaving tools just dropped right in time for Father's Day. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is now available in USA and Canada. What makes this waterproof trimmer different from all other trimmers? The 7,000 RPM trimmer features skin-safe technology to keep your balls in check and has helped reduce manscaping accidents around the world. Stop imagining your dad has it covered because guess what? He probably doesn't. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. This is the perfect package for you and your dad's perfect package. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code RCST. It's dad bod season. Time to get smooth. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got toxic. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Rough night for Jayhawk, former Jayhawk. I hate saying Jayhawk because it sounds like they're still on the team, but if you say former Jayhawk, people go, no, they're always a Jayhawk. All right, former Kansas basketball player Joel Embiid had a rough night last night. He went 0 of 12 in the second half of the Sixers' loss to the Hawks. Spoiler alert, they lost the game. 0 for 12 is the most shots that a player has taken in a single half of basketball without a miss in 25 years, postseason or regular season. And the one that gave him that illustrious record was the final shot, which was a potential go-ahead layup. That was number 12 besting the record uh, set by Michael Jordan. So good company at the very least. Usually it's good players who take lots of shots. So uh, that's a little brutal. It's not just missing a shot. It's missing a layup. 
If he missed an elbow jumper, we'd say, oh, you know, you can't make them all. Kevin Durant misses a three. We say, oh, it was a three, you know. You only The best players only make 40% of them. Layups, though. Layups for a seven-foot-one dude, like, those feel like they should probably go in. It wasn't a wide-open layup, but still, I mean, your hand's right there. The ball's right there. The rim's there. Just, just put it in. You need the dunk package there. Is that the worst feeling in sports, missing a layup? Uh, at least it wasn't like a breakaway layup. Like, it was him all by himself. Nobody else is around. That would be... You don't come back from those. No. Because at that point, you're seven foot, you know, dunk the damn ball. It'd probably be easier. I think Bill Self said that <laughs> once about... Um, I think Markeith Morris missed a layup once. And Bill Self said afterwards that he, he's like, it, it should be easier to dunk the ball than it is to lay it up. Like, when you're that big, just dunking, it's probably easier just to go up and put it down. You're seven foot one, you're dunking that if it's breakaway. But that was in traffic. He sort of had to worm his way past a defender. And if he would have went six of 12 in that half, and that was the, the sixth miss, it wouldn't feel quite as bad. But to cap off the worst half in the last 25 years of NBA history, and the irony is Joel Embiid still finished the game with 17 points and 21 rebounds. So, you know, it's like a career game for most players. But... Only went twenty percent from the field. A missed layup is bad. You know the one that I think is worse is a chip shot missing a chip shot field goal, because the big difference between those two is if you miss a chip shot field goal, it means you're a kicker, and if you're a kicker, that means your teammates probably don't respect you to begin with. So you're starting from a lower rung. And then getting knocked down a peg from there. You're Joel Embiid. You missed a layup. It's fine. You're the best player on the team. Where would they be without you? With a kicker, every time you step on the field, your teammates are saying, you better not screw this up. And it's not just your teammates. Like, the organization's saying it. Because what position in all of sports is more likely to get fired the day after not doing your job adequately? I mean, it's the only one. It's the only one. Nobody's ever gone 0 for 12 from the field and then gotten, like, in basketball and then got released the next day. But if you're a kicker and you go 0 for 5, there's a good chance that that we're done with you because you're probably not making that much money to begin with. So that pressure of everyone hates me, I have to do my job immaculately or they're going to hate me. The only way to be like this, to never screw up, that pressure would be mounting I think that missing a chip shot field goal would feel worse than missing a wide open layup. Yeah, I think you're right. But also, like, it it just goes with, I don't know, the fact that Joel Embiid, like, nobody after the game is going to be like, we hate you, right, on his team. Yeah, but it's, I guess it's more about how you would feel. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. I'm just saying, like, wouldn't that make like you I feel worse? I was right there. I was but, right no, there. No, but wouldn't that make you feel worse if you were... Like, again, if you're a teammate of Joel Embiid, you're not going up to him after the game, the best player on your team, and saying, you suck. But if you're a <laughs> kicker who, you know, a lot of times the guys in the locker room aren't best friends with the kicker, you might go up to him and say, you suck. Well, it's weird because chip shot field goals are meant to be easy. Mm-hmm. What about just dropping a touchdown pass? Regardless of what level of player you uh, are. Drop because touchdowns are hard. Field goals, easy. Mm-hmm. Touchdowns are hard to get. If you drop... Like a wide open touchdown pass, even if you're Tyree Kill, you have to think we're not getting those points back. 
we're not about to score in a touchdown on the next play. Well, you might. But what's the beauty of that? The field goal, <laughs> like you could, you could score later that drive. The field goal one, it's like, nope, the drive's over. Yeah, but a field goal, it's like it was only three points anyway. And also, the field goal one is like a lot of times the field goal is to win the game at the end of the game, and you miss the chip shot. That would be brutal. There's a resolute finish. Game winning chip shot field goal would mm-hmm. be very brutal. But dude, even missing a, we pile on kickers who miss 45 yard field goals to win the game, and those those are way harder. But we're still like, you better make it. Mm-hmm. You better make it or you suck. With wide receiver, it's you You don't suck, but would have liked to have had that touchdown there. How about individual failures? How about missing a short putt? I, I don't even say tap-in putt because it's so rare to miss a tap-in putt. No, but like I guess I, tap-ins are different for pros than they are for amateurs. Like, a tap-in putt for me is, like, two inches. A tap-in putt for a pro is probably a foot. Yeah. No, I saw uh, Dustin Johnson in on Sunday. I don't know if you saw this. He triple bogeyed uh-huh. a hole late in the round. And it was like he, he missed the, the – I forget if it was the par or the bogey shot. and barely missed it. So then he was clearly frustrated. So then he gets – you know, at that point, he's not taking time. Yeah. So he just goes up to tap it in because it is only maybe six, eight inches away. And he missed it again. But see, that had to feel awful. That had to feel awful. He was in contention, too, at that point. The difference between that and others is that there is no excuse to miss that. Whereas either layup, there's somebody stopping you. There's somebody in your way trying to keep you from scoring. Uh, with a field goal, there's a lot of pressure. Fans are screaming. Um, there's people trying to block the, the kick. Everything has to go right. The snap has to be good. The hold has to be good. The wind, the weather, everything playing a factor into that. A touchdown pass it could be sunny out. You took your eye off the ball. That one's a little bit less excusable. But like a tap and putt, there's no reason why you should miss it. If you take your time and you give that putt the respect it deserves, you're going to make it. I guess the flip side is, you don't have anybody who's mad at you for it, other than gamblers. But that can apply to any of these things. How many people do you think lost money off that layup last night? Like hundreds of thousands of dollars no, the, exchanged hands. The Dustin Johnson one. If you had like a top five bet on him, you were sitting there like, over. oh, he's tied second right now. He's tied third. And then it's like, oh, no, he didn't even finish top When 10. he just decides, I don't care anymore. <laughs> right. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought I the care. whole point. I thought the whole point was that you cared and that you're going to keep trying to win money. And he's like, I've got enough money. And now you don't, I don't get any money today. You don't get any money either. What about dropping a pop-up in baseball? The implications of that just aren't nearly as high. Like you should, you should do that successfully. Okay. What is worse for baseball? Is it dropping a pop-up or having a weak ground ball going through your legs? Oh, that's more embarrassing. Yeah. Like the, uh, the Bill Buckner, that wasn't like a weak ground ball, but. The- yeah. If it's a, you know, if it's a, if it's a line drive. If it's really yeah. hot, then you, that's excusable. But if it sort of just like dribbles through your legs. Actually, if we're just going off, because there's two different things here. There's there's things that you don't want to do, like failures, and there's also embarrassments. And it's funny about baseball. I feel like baseball has more embarrassments than any other sport. <laughs> Whereas other sports have failures, there's a lot of ways to embarrass yourself in baseball. Uh, not seeing the fly ball. In not the seeing the fly ball. Running into another player. Dude, that, yeah. what is a more funny thing to happen in sports when, when two guys, and this can be dangerous if they collide too hard, but two guys going for a pop fly and they just run into yeah. each other. It's like what do you, It's like the least athletic looking thing you could ever see. Running toward the fans at like the side wall and you don't catch it and then you 
dive into a plate of nachos yeah, and beer. Beers yeah. flying everywhere. Why is it that baseball has like more <laughs> embarrassing type things? Like even striking out is kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Like you, you swung. It's striking out, swinging specifically. It's like you swung and you couldn't even hit the ball. The bat flying out of your hands when you swing. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So those aren't necessarily failures. Mm-hmm. No one's gonna be mad at you, but everyone's gonna kind of laugh at you for that. But I guess basketball has a lot too. I mean, basketball board shacked in a fool. Yeah. And maybe that was just a good sort of marketing television entertainment ploy, but also it makes sense. Guys, I always remember JaVel McGee. It was, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? He's stumbling down the court, and he's tra- he's like a fast break. He's seven foot, just uncoordinated, bumbly. And he's trying to regain control of the ball. So I think it was at the end of a clock, and he just sort of, as he's falling forward from about half court, he just sort of heaves the ball up just to salvage whatever's left of that possession, and he throws it about 20 feet over the backboard into the stands. Like, you don't see that very often. You don't see basketball players chucking the ball into the stands. So I guess basketball has that too. I don't want to I don't want to pile on Embiid too much because, uh, you know, he's still really good. But that's just got to be uh, – that's got to be a pretty brutal feeling. I think uh, there was a hockey player for the Boston Bruins, maybe this is similar, who this was last round. They ended up losing, and it was game four, game five. They were either tied in the series or they were, like, up a game. And he had an empty – the goalie had, like, fallen down elsewhere. Wide open net. Oh. Gets passed to him. Swing and a miss. Oh, no. And this is like a star player, like one of the best players in the NHL. How far away was he from the goal? Five feet. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. Um, you missed left, up, right? I mean, No, he just missed the puck. Oh, he missed the puck. Yeah. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> I thought you meant he hit the puck and just missed the goal. And they ended up losing the game. They lost the series. I don't even think they won another game after that. Wow. Wow. So, like, it could be that. You know, if the if the Sixers lose this series, you're going to point back to this and be like, that was the reason why. But the good news here, it's not in the finals, so if they come back and win the series, it's just it's under the rug. This is one of those series where even if you want the Hawks to win and you like Trey Young and you think they're a fun team, like for the betterment of the sport, the, the, the Sixers need to win. Because if the Hawks, don't, if the Hawks win... That just ensures that the conference finals are not going to be competitive. Because even if they're good enough to beat the Sixers, they're not good enough to beat the next team. Like, come on. The Hawks are not good enough to go to the NBA finals. Right? Right? Can we acknowledge that? That that's not going to happen? And I know that sucks because I'm a I'm the biggest Damian Lillard fan and I always root for them. And it seems like every single year they're pitted against somebody else with the opportunity to upset the better team. Like, it happened last year with, or was that two years ago, with the Thunder? When he sent the Thunder home. Well, that was the Paul George Thunder, right? Yeah. That was great. But in the next series, what happened? Blazers lost. No, they won. But the series after that. The series after that, though, (laughs) they lost. And the Thunder could have won that series. Mm -hmm. So, therefore... We always need the best teams to win. I've done a full circle from last Friday saying that their teams are too good and it's making for not fun basketball. But that's kind of to my point is that the Nets are so good that they need a good team to go up against them. Because if they play a bad team, then they'll assuredly beat them. By the way, James Harden upgraded 
from doubtful to questionable. Is that enough? Are the Nets back? After losing Kyrie Irving, James Harden nearing a return. Is that enough? No. I think a, I think a 40% James Harden and a 100% Kevin Durant's enough to beat just about anybody. The Bucks included. We're just one game removed from Giannis looking like one of the stars in Space Jam when they have their powers taken away from them. I mean, he got stifled by Blake Griffin. That was hard to watch mm. in Game 3. Blake Griffin's a Hall of Famer. What do you want? Is he? Probably. Everybody makes the Basketball yeah. Hall of Fame, huh? Interesting to think about. Most embarrassing things to happen in sports. Worst feelings in sports. I'll ask Matt Tate what his answer is. He's going to join us Coming up here in about 20 minutes, you're listening to Rock Chuck Sports Talk. You know, something else that I thought about is is maybe like a second-tier sports embarrassment. There's, there's something really great about when a quarterback confidently, like not... Josh Allen, two years ago, was great at this. Like, Josh Allen getting good at football sort of ruined this phenomenon. But a quarterback confidently throwing into an interception. Like, I didn't think nobody stepped into an interception better than Josh Allen, where he would just sort of look down the field, and you'd see him do that little crow hop, that one step, and he's just rifling it to nobody. Actually, he's rifling it to another player. And there's, like, nobody within 10 yards, and you think, what was that? That, to me, is sort of a... Like, it's almost, I respected how brash you are with your inability to make a good throw. Matt Tate of the LJ World is going to join us coming up next. Julian Wright missed a dunk where he just, the ball slipped out of his hands, and then he had to fake the injury underneath the basket. Remember that? He tried to do a windmill dunk on a breakaway when he got about 30% of the way back. Ball slipped, and he just, a probably natural reaction fell to the floor in a heap and just sort of grabbed at his leg and everybody goes, okay, you cramp, you cramping now or uh, you drop the ball. Major League Baseball is going to be handing out 10 game suspensions if a pitcher is found to be in violation of the substance rule. 10 game suspension with pay. With pay, it should be noted. So a 10-game suspension, does this count starts, or that's just games? So that's nope, two starts. Game, yeah. So if you're a starting pitcher, that's two starts. If you're, a, if you're a bullpen guy, it's a little bit different. Rule 3.01 and Rule 6.02c. They both ban the use of foreign substances, and it will discipline all substances the same. So it doesn't matter if you're using uh, sunscreen, if you're using spider tack, even though spider tack is the one that players view to be over the line. Do you remember Clay Buckholtz with the, um, what was that called? The, the frog, the bullfrog sunscreen that he would just drench his hair in it. And after each pitch, he would just reach back, and his hair looks so greasy and clumped together. It's got sunscreen all over it. And he would just reach back after each pitch and use that. So when when players were doing that, and it became a thing, 
when you had Vaseline or pine tar underneath the hat, right? Who was the, the Michael Yankees? Pineda? Got Michael caught, Pineda. Yeah. What was he getting? What did he get caught? I think his was pine tar. Pine tar underneath the brim of the hat. He kept reaching up. Those were one guys. Like that was one guy. Individual situations that were caught on like national television. This is something that's becoming. You know what's what's interesting about the spider tax stuff is that this didn't be start with a viral video. This didn't start with a video of Clay Buckholtz rubbing his hair or Michael Pineda grabbing the brim of his hat. And usually that's what it takes to get people worked up is video. Is a viral video that everybody looks at and nobody can deny he's doing something there. How did this become something? Is it simply because the players think that we, you know what, we knew they were using sunscreen, we knew they were using pine tar, but this stuff is just too hard to hit. Is it because it's affecting the product widespread that that is why they're stepping in? That it's specific to this spider tech as opposed to specific to guys just putting any substance on the ball? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, uh, you're kind of looking for answers as to why the hitting is so down this year. You're kind of looking at, well, why are all these guys' spin rates so up? And why do you have certain guys who, you know, maybe they were good pitchers or average pitchers who now look like all-stars and all of a sudden their stuff looks a lot different and they have all these excessive spin rates on their fastballs and sliders. And again, it all goes back to the fact that hitting is down. People are hitting 230 or whatever. And you start to question why. I mean, I think we've always kind of known the answer over the past couple of years because this hasn't just been happening this year. No, like, you know, this is decades. I think this is, this decades is just of the using- culmination of it, and you maybe have more people doing it now where it's an overall thing. Where, But when it becomes systemic, then you start asking the questions. And then when the MLB starts bringing attention to it, which they did. I mean, if the MLB never brought attention to this, I don't think we'd be talking about it. They brought attention to the fact that they were going to start testing uh, baseballs and stuff. In, I think they announced that in spring training. They were going to start testing baseballs. Um, like they were just going to take them from the games and send them back to a lab and test them. I don't know whatever happened to those because certainly nothing has come out of that. But like when you see that happening and when you see the MLB coming out and start talking about this, obviously it starts getting to the forefront of what the discussion is in the MLB. If they would have just, you know, shoved it under the bed. We'd probably deep down still know what's going on, but we wouldn't be talking about it. Jeff Passan reported that some teams have already instructed their pitchers to start throwing bullpen sessions without foreign substances to get used to it. But do you think that guys are just going to stop using substances or they're just going to stop using spider tech? Because spider tech is a thing we just learned about this year. Pine tar, rosin? been around forever and I know the rosin with the sunscreen was the combination that made it really sticky but pine tar has had its tentacles wrapped around the sport for decades upon decades so is this going to be applied judiciously or is this just a way to get spider tack out of baseball I don't know that's that's the question because as of now the MLB has not cooperated with like the players in a situation where they're like, hey, let's sit down with some of these The players pitchers. don't get the choice in this. No, they don't. Um, and what that leads me to believe, like I know Max Scherzer's been outspoken about this, like sit down with us, let's figure out what should be legal, what shouldn't be legal, right? It's that simple. Like a collective bargaining sort of thing. But guess what? Collective bargaining, CBA is due up at the end of the year. 
So you know what this all reeks of to me? The MLB is trying to get another negotiation chip for the MLB leverage. owners. They're trying to get some extra leverage where they can say to the MLBPA, we'll give you the substances. Because they don't really care. No, we'll give you the substances. What are they trying In to get return, on the other end? In return, we want expanded playoffs. Or we want um, you know, less of the money to you guys. Or we want a salary cap. You know, the, difference, the difference here between painting it as the players is like, is it the players or is it the pitchers? I mean, there's some hitters. Like, I know Pete Alonzo came out, and he was kind of, like, giving us conspiracy theory about it. I don't know what that all was about. But he was like, there are some hitters that say they would rather them have substances. Now, I don't think every hitter wants them to have the spider tack necessarily, but they do want them to have some substances so that they can have control of the baseball. Now, the MLB's counter to that, which was a good one today in the memo, they said uh, the numbers on hit-by-pitches of players are actually up this year. With all these substances. So if it was really leading to better control, then we would see that number being down. And that's not the case. But I, I, I do know there are some hitters who say that, that they would rather feel like if you're going to be throwing 98 in there that you have a better grip on the ball. I'm just wondering if this does come down to the idea that the players are going to have to stand up and fight for this. Is the Players Association going to collectively get behind this just for the betterment of the pitchers, or are the batters going to say, well, we don't really want this in, in baseball anyway? And there may be a few, like you mentioned, but, like, there's a lot more than a lot more offensive players in baseball than there are pitchers. Yeah. So if I think they collectively depends. come by and say, we don't like this because it makes us look bad. Yeah, I think it depends. Like, again, there are certain substances that I bet you most hitters are actually okay with. Like, I bet you a lot of hitters would be like, if they want to use sunscreen and rosin, let them. You know, that's whatever. But the spider attack, the like, I don't know if you saw this one. The Angels had like a guy in their training room or something who was making basically like a homemade sticky substance I like that. for pitchers to use. Every team should have a, 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 a team chemist. Right. And that's the thing. You, you don't want that to happen. You don't want every team to be like, okay, we're going to start, instead of like investing in, hey, we need more money in our scouting department or we need more money like, in like, our department. We just hired somebody from BP. Yeah. <laughs> we just hired somebody from MIT straight out of college. All they're going to do is chemistry yeah. in the locker room and figure out what's up. Like, no, you don't want that. So figure out what's legal, what's not, come to a consensus, and just deal with that. Yeah, that's what they should do. That's what they should do. Uh, I don't think that 10 games with pay – is enough because you can tell me that the teams are instructing pitchers to go and start to get used to not pitching with foreign substances, but how long is that going to last? They have to get identified by the umpire. That's something we haven't even mentioned. This isn't where you're going to get retroactively disciplined if they find out. The umpire has to <laughs> notice it. And is the umpire going to be doing checks on the pitcher? No. Are they gonna, yeah, like TSA checks? You know, you're like maybe they'll feel a baseball. That's the only way they could do it, right? They yeah, feel a baseball and then they guess. go up to the mound and I don't see know. what's that, going on. That's that's kind of weird to me. I I think that this because there will be guys who continue to use yes and can get away with it because again the MLB, the umpire's not going to see everything from sixty feet away. I feel like this is just the MLB being like, you know, what? this is a problem, but we don't want to deal with this problem ourselves. We're going to let the umpires deal with it because the umpires take all the crap anyway. Yeah, you you go deal with it. You already you all already yeah. hate them. So what's a little bit more ammunition? There are going to be guys who are going to keep using, and then they're going to get caught. And even when they get caught, if they get caught, which still seems relatively unlikely, once they get caught, you miss two starts. Mm -hmm. You know what? Okay, you want a conspiracy? You're not getting suspended for half a season. You miss two starts. I've got a conspiracy Who cares? for you. Uh, Max Scherzer, 
just went on the IL today. Um, Shane Bieber went on the IL a couple days ago. Bieber maybe less so because his like spin rates are so low, but Scherzer's been kind of outspoken about this. What if both these guys are using um, different substances? And like Shane Bieber was a guy who his spin rates were way lower his last start after the announcement. Now, maybe he was just actually injured, and that's why. But conspiracy theory would say they're sending these guys to the IL. They're actually fine, but they've been using substances, and they're afraid that if they pitch their next start without the substances, it's, it's too obvious. Look. So what they're going to do is have them go on the IL. They can practice without the substances for a couple weeks. Then they can go up to AA or AAA, wherever they put them, to do their rehab start. They get to do it without substances, but it's in a lower-pressure environment. Because well, that did happen to a couple guys. Yeah. Like, didn't Trevor Bauer go out yeah. and get shelled last weekend? Mm-hmm. Worst outing of the year. Mm-hmm. And he was leading the league in spin rate. And then the guy who was second, who was, I can't remember his name. Uh, Corbin Burns. He went out and got shelled this weekend, too. So you think other guys didn't look at that and say, oh, if that happens to everybody, people are going to start connecting the dots. If it happens to one or two guys, you can just say, hey, well, we know they were using. They had the highest spin rates in the league. If you're like 10th or 11th on that chart, you could say, well, you know, I'm just good. I got that stuff. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually saw an article that mentioned something Trevor Bauer referenced from a couple of years ago, and this answered our question yesterday, like who would win the roided up Barry Bonds or the yeah. spin rate guy. Um, Trevor Bauer said that substances being used by pitchers are actually more unfair than steroids. So he answered the question for us from a pitcher. More unfair than yeah. steroids than a guy hitting 70-plus home runs in a season. <laughs> All right. All right. I mean, didn't Zach Grinke throw like a sub-1 ERA when he won the Cy Young? He actually finished runner-up. He had a sub-2 ERA. No, he won the Cy Young. Oh, with, with the, the Royals? Royals? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about the year with the Dodgers. He had like a sub-2 and he didn't even win it. I'm just saying, like, they're... Trevor Bauer's good. It's not... Like I don't, I don't think about him as being one of the greatest pitchers I've ever seen. So, it's a little bit, little bit of a way for him to talk about just how good I am. I mean, look at what I'm doing. It's good. It's not that special. Matt Tate of the LJ World going to join us coming up next. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. So, friend of the Kansas football program, Rick Ross, recently said in an interview that. He cuts his own grass at his mansion in Miami. And this is a guy, if you listen to any of his music, music videos, it's a life of opulence. It's a life of luxury, of fine automobiles, massive houses, um, tons and tons and tons of jewelry, expensive clothing, uh, scantily clad women with large appendages, and... This is a man who cuts his own grass. Just like you. Working Just man. like you, man. Mm-hmm. He says that he calls five of his friends over. They get really high. They smoke pot together. And then they each hop on a riding mower and mow it together. Because it's a, it's a house so big that it takes five riding mowers to get the job done. He also said in a recent interview he flies Delta. No private jets drinking champagne. He's sitting commercial. Just like you and I, extremely relatable, which kind of runs counterintuitive to the rest of his persona. Matt Tate of the LJ World joins us now on the show. Matt, do you mow your own lawn? Oh, yeah. I love mowing the lawn. Really? Are you a push mower or a riding mower? Push, 
push, and I'm not like I'm not like anal with the lines and all that. I just I just Aww. like the I like the I like how it looks at the end when it's when it's when it's freshly mowed and it looks like you accomplished something and it feels good and then you do it four days later after a torrential rain for yeah. three days and then you want to cry and not have lawn and just put rocks and cacti and everything in your front yard. But I do like mowing the lawn. So I have a way for you to feel that pride even more. You mow my lawn as well. Oh, okay. There we go. Wow. You love your lawn so much. Put your money where your mouth is. Wow. Hey, tough guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I honestly, I'll be honest with you, though. I just, <laughs> I just really, whatever we're talking about, I just can't get past the uh, large appendages that you just said. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I that part tripped me up. <laughs> I could have gotten more graphic, but this is a children's show. Uh, You're a classy guy. Yeah, well, I'm a classy guy, and I know there's a lot of kids listening. A lot of kids listening. We've reached reached the youth in America. Um, A lot of kids. I mean, Derek, you probably probably work out a payment plan. He's not going to do it for free, but if he has to haul his mower over. No, he gets paid in pride. Paid in pride. Paid in pride. That's a a nice. I don't know what that needs to be on. Obviously, a T-shirt, but like recruiting I don't know pitch. If that's a, band name a recruiting or, yeah, pitch something. for Bill Self. You know, players are asking, "What do you guys got for me in terms of name, image, likeness? Do you have ways for me to sort of profit off my my name and my marketability?" And he said, "No, we'll pay you in pride. The pride that you're going to feel, pride, the pride you'll feel putting on that jersey every night." Damn, that's good. Hashtag paid in pride. Yeah, hashtag maybe, maybe, hashtag missing the NCAA tournament. Because you can't get in the players. <laughs> I don't think that's a like recruiting it. pitch. Um, no, no. Hey, we were talking earlier, Matt, uh, last night. I don't know if you saw this. It was a rough second half for Joel Embiid. Sixers lost. Embiid goes 0 for 12 in the second half. That last miss was a potential go-ahead layup at the rim. Tough to, tough to miss a layup. I think anybody can relate to missing a layup. How sort of worthless you feel after missing what should be a uh, gimme. And we were comparing it to other bad feelings in sports, like dropping a touchdown pass or, or missing a chip shot field goal or missing a tap in putt of, of any of those. And even ones that perhaps I didn't miss that, that come to mind for you. What do you think is, is the worst feeling that you can have as a professional or amateur athlete? Um, I, you know what, I really, I, this, this might seem weird cause you know, you didn't mention it, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be afraid to put missing a free throw up there, man. I mean, I know, I know it. you know, guys don't make a hundred percent of their free throws. Very few guys even shoot 90%, but like it's free a layup. Yeah. I mean, like you're just standing there and, and nobody's you know you, in your way. Nobody's in your way. You've shot millions of jumpers. You've practiced that release and the rotation and your elbow and all that a billion times like you'd make the if you miss one you you'd make the next one right like it just i mean it's just baffling when you miss a free throw and and i think there's you know it's a a momentum killer um you get fouled especially like if you get fouled on a layup right like you had a layup and the guy made a hard foul and took two points away from you that you should have had because your guy made a great pass to you and and all you had to do was finish it. And then now you go to the line and you miss one. And I mean, God forbid you miss both, but if you miss one, even you walk away from that thing going, God, man, we should have had two. Yeah. I only got one. How about Christian Moody, Christian Moody at the end of that game in Columbia 
where he goes 0 yeah. for 2 at the free throw line. And I think Forget KU that. lost yeah, in overtime. Right. I mean, that that's a whole other level of misery. Yeah, that's like but, all but, uh, of them stacked on one another. Yeah, game on the line. I mean, all, yeah. That, so Make one. You know what? Like, I don't know, though. Like, a tap-in putt is pretty – that's pretty bad. That's basically the same thing because you've stroked a million putts in your life and it should be easy, you know. But, but I don't know. I mean, people miss three-footers. I don't know that people really miss tap-ins, you know. Uh, so. Dustin Johnson missed a tap-in. Just last week, yeah. Derek knows yeah, because there was some money on the line there. Needed him for a top five, and uh, he didn't finish top five after he just sort of mailed it in. But at that point, yeah. you only got yourself to be mad at. And nobody else is right, going right, right, You don't right. have a fan base or a locker room full of teammates who are wondering what oh, the yeah, hell you were true. thinking. You either. didn't let the world down. Yes, exactly. Like Dustin Johnson doesn't know that Derek lost money because of that, nor does he care. Nor does he care. That is the most important aspect. I'm sure he knows a right, lot of people right. lost money, but he is uh, unconcerned with that. I think I think missing a chip shot field goal would be rough, and I, and I said this earlier this hour. My, my line of thinking is that if you miss a field goal, that means you're a kicker. And if you're a kicker, that means you probably aren't the most well-liked guy in that locker room. You probably yeah, don't have yeah. much job security to begin with. And the only way to get that locker room to respect you or to get any level of job security with that organization is to be incredible at your job. That's not the barometer for any other position. Most other positions, if you can just be okay to, to good to great, that's good enough. But with kickers, you have to be incredible. And if you miss a chip shot field goal... I mean, what other sport will just fire a guy the next day? That happens in kickers yeah. all the time. We'll see a guy miss a field goal at the end of a game. Monday reports is so-and-so has hit the waiver wire because the Bears have released him. Yeah, Bears is a good one, too. That's happened to them a lot. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, I, I, think that's a good, I think that's a good one because, again, you're not talking about, like, me going out there and making a field goal. No, you're talking about a guy pros. who's – Paid handsomely to do it, and he is—it's his expertise. It's, 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 yeah. I mean, um, that—that's a good one. I mean, and there have been some bad ones, man. Like uh, 1998, Gary Anderson and the Minnesota Vikings. Mm-hmm. Gary Anderson just needs to make this field goal to go to the Super Bowl, and he misses it. And it, I mean, the Seattle kicker, right? Um, was that? Was that? No, it was, a, it was another Minnesota Vikings kicker, Blair Walsh, maybe uh, yeah. against Seattle. Oh my God! I mean, those are. Those are yeah, those are gut wrenching. Um, but well, who but was the guy for the Bears? Still, who was the kid for the Bears who got who double doinked it? Derek, uh, do you remember his name? The Bears is it Caleb, uh, Cody, he, Cody Parkey. He was Cody just Parkey. Like on the Browns too. Or Parkey, something. There you yeah, go. he yep. double doinked yep. it off both uprights. Yeah, that was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still think with the with the field goal, you gotta have the snap. Uh, you gotta have the hold. Yeah. You got a rush coming, even if it's a chip shot. Like, there's a lot of external Wind, factors yeah. there. A free throw is you're just freaking standing there, man. You just have to, you just have to release the ball right, put your elbow right, and follow through, and you're good. Like, I mean, you, you know, I, I don't know. I won't argue against any of those that you mentioned. I think they're all they're all on the list and, and deserving of their own time in the spotlight there. But, um, but man, that one that one hurts. I think. I, but but boy, imagine airballing a free throw, dude. We've seen plenty of those. It happens. Like, it like come happen. on, it's free. Yeah. It's free, brother. It's free. Just put it in there. <laughs> come on. Oh my goodness, free throws! What a phenomenon. Yeah, the it only thing really in sports, are, I mean, the only thing in sports that we, li- or I guess, there's free kicks. 
but those aren't really free. You got a bunch of dudes standing. You don't in get way. points either. You don't get points, right? Like, well, if you made it, you could. Oh, oh, in soccer, a goal. I got you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's true. That's true. But there's like 18 guys standing in the way, so it's not quite the same as yeah, the free man. throw in basketball. I like that. Nope. I like the free throw. That's a new. Uh, we'll add that to the list of submissions from uh, Matt Tate of the LJ World, who is with us here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. Uh, Begin some interesting quotes coming out of. Uh, Brett Ballard's basketball camp, which that, that Washburn basketball camp always sees a, a few KU players go over there and, and help out with the young campers. Interesting quote yesterday from Cam Martin, who comes over from Missouri Southern, played for Jeff Boshi. This is a guy who was maybe coming from the D2 ranks, but if you're going to get a guy from the D2 ranks, you'd rather get a guy that was an All-American every year, which is what he was. High-level scorer, high-level rebounder, high-level shooter. Shot 44% from three-point range, and he said yesterday that he's a shooter. That's just the way it is, and that the coaches have told him that they like his jump shot. Now, when you look at the roster and the guys that we know are going to play, like we know David McCormick is going to be your five-man. If Jalen Wilson is back, I think, feel pretty good about the fact that he's going to be the the same guy he was last year and play that four spot. Where do you see Cam Martin in his role being this year? Is he a guy who... Is simply competing for backup big minutes behind Dave. Is he a guy you could see playing alongside Dave? What do you? Th- uh, how do you kind of view that role playing out over the course of the next couple months? You know what? It, it's. I mean, this is kind of trite these days, right? And, and over the last few years, this has been uh, a common refrain. But but it's really all about how he defends. You know, I mean, if. If he can't defend on the perimeter, then there's no way he can play next to Dave um, because even though Dave has shown improvement over his career at times, he's not a stellar perimeter defender by any means either. So you can't have them both out there if, if at least one of them doesn't do it at a high level. So, um, we, you know, we don't know the answer to that yet, especially because he hasn't played much at this level and, and certainly hasn't played Bill Self-type defense ever in his life probably. So, um I, I I think because of that, because that's an unknown, um, I, I think the smart money is on him being a, you know, a, a change of pace type of guy with Dave at the five spot. I don't know that I don't know that you even need to call him a, you know, a necessarily a backup minutes kind of guy. But I don't see the I don't see it very likely that Dave McCormick's going to play thirty thirty five minutes a game. I mean, I think he's shown last year that. He's really good in about 20, 25 minutes a game. And that, if that's the case, that leaves you 15 to 20 minutes a game where you've got to have someone else in there who's a viable option. And, and um, that, I think that's Cam Martin. I really do. I mean, I think uh, he's got to prove it. He's got to show he can hang down low. Uh, but if he can, he opens up a lot of different looks on offense. He, he puts a lot of pressure on the opponent um, because he can stand out there and and knock down threes. Um, I was over there at the camp and, and talked to him about that very thing. I think that quote, I asked him basically, uh, you know, if he, if he feels like he's going to have to change anything up about, about his shot. I mean, you watch some of his game film, and, and he gets pretty open in a lot of those jumpers. And, and he, he's very fundamentally sound. I, won't, I don't want to call it slow, but, you know, he takes his time to get himself set and really release a good-looking jump shot. I wondered and this is why I asked him that, I wondered if he feels like, is, is he going to have that same time, that same ability, that same 
that same, same space to be able to shoot the way he shoots, or is he going to have to learn a quicker release or something like that? And, you know, he didn't blink. As, as you mentioned, he said, you know, I'm going to shoot if it's open. And that's, that's, that's simple, right? And, and good mentality to have. I think that's probably the mentality the coaches are going to want him to have. So, um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see what kind of level he can get to right away and, and early on. And I think it'll show early, you know, you'll know pretty quickly, but, but I do think that what he gives offensively, it, it could cause some problems for opponents. And, and he, he told me the other day too, that he's been working a lot on that pick and pop stuff. And he wants to be able to be that guy that can just, um, what, whether it's, you know, open shot in rhythm or just a pick and pop guy who can be a threat to shoot after the pick and roll type of situation. I mean, either way, he wants, he's been working a ton on that this off season. And that's a big part of what he thinks he can bring to this team. So I, I you know, I, I see his role as, as 15 minutes, easy, pretty solid. And, and something that you then can do a lot of different things with your offense. At that point, you can play five out at that point, um, or you can throw him in inside and, and, run through him a little bit because he does believe he has strength and, and the ability to score down there. So it, it's all uh, it's all unknown right now until we see him do it and until he gets into some more practice situations and, and, and they tinker with this roster and this lineup and put pieces together and, and look at different things. But but I, I think he's uh, I think he's a legitimate um, part of the rotation. I think he's a legitimate player that that, that gives you options at that five spot and, and uh I would be. I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, if they run into somebody big and they've got to, they've got to put some beef in there, then yeah, I guess you could put him out there with, with McCormick because then you're just two big guys against guys down low. You don't have to worry about him guarding on the perimeter as much. But with the way the game's going and and all these you know four guard type lineups and stuff like that, I just I don't think that'll be very likely. Yeah, I think a lot of it's going to come down to speed, right? Can you keep up with? Uh... The speed of the game, which we are not going to be able to figure yep. that out until we get all the way to the regular season, but that'll definitely something to uh, to keep your eye on. He is Matt Tate. You can check his workout, KUSports.com, in the Lawrence Journal world. Hear him here Tuesdays on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Always fun, man. Thank you for the time, Matt. Yes, sir. Have a good rest of the week, man. It's hot out there. It feels wonderful. I know. I know. Thank you, brother. He is Matt Tate with Eric Johnson. I'm Nick Schwert. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Tea times were released today for the U.S. Open, and fans did not get what they had hoped for. No Bryson-Brooks pairing. In fact, I don't think that the USGA could have put these guys any further apart. Get a load of this. Brooks Kepka's going off at 729, and they do the, the split tea times where they put half the guys off hole 10 and half the guys off hole 1. So he's going off hole... 10 at 729 with Morikawa and Justin Thomas. Bryson is going off on hole one at 114. So not only is one in the AM wave, one in the PM wave, one's going off one, one's going off 18. Uh, Bryson, who is the reigning U.S. Open champion, is going to be paired with Hideki Matsuyama, who just won the Masters, and Tyler Strafacci. Somebody explain to me why the reigning U.S. Open champ is going off with Tyler Stefaci, who is the reigning U.S. amateur champion. Maybe that's... You just answered the question. Two yeah. U.S. champions, two patrons of the uh-huh. American flag. 
Right, and right. the Masters champion too. Yeah, that's loaded. I don't know what you're talking about. It's just not super watchable. The USGA had a golden opportunity to to try and put more eyeballs on the screen in such a low risk opportunity because what would have happened was those guys would have played golf and hardly talked to one another and then taken their hats off and shook hands on the 18th green. And then said something like a snide comment in the post game. I don't even know if it would have been snide. No, I I, th- I think like Brooks Kepka would have been like, Brooks well, Kepka- you know, it's tough to get a rhythm when you have to wait so long between shots, something like that. So this morning, Brad Faxon, former player, now turned analyst, went on Sirius XM radio and he was asked if he thought this was good for the game, right? And he kind of compared growing the game to what Michael Jordan did in the 90s when he said Michael Jordan brought more eyeballs to the game, so he grew the popularity of the game, but he didn't make more kids pick up basketballs. And it's sort of the same thing, the sort of the same question you ask yourself about golf is, is this good for the game? Okay, does this mean that more people are watching? Probably. Does this mean that more kids are going to go start playing golf? Probably not. So what do you want to accomplish by growing the game? Ultimately, every sports league is going to be invested in getting as many eyeballs on their league as they possibly can. The USGA, PGA Tour, is no different. But he said at the end of that answer that he was told, and he was talking to some, I don't know, he was at some some bigwig party with some Titleist reps and was told that uh, they approached Bryson and asked if he would be interested in it in playing with Brooks this week. So I don't think they were definitively going to do it. They were maybe just kicking the tires, and he said, no thanks. Brooks Kepka was asked about it earlier today at his press conference, and he basically said, don't care who I play with. I'm just out there to play my game. And that's at the crux of all of this, is that golf, with it being an individual sport, you think about the opportunity to grow individual stars. The problem with golf, unlike other individual sports like tennis, for example, is you can get a great rivalry with Federer and Nadal, but those guys have to go head-to-head. Those guys are going to compete against one another in virtually every major for decade-plus, almost 20 years. That's how rivalries are born. But in golf, you don't have guys going head-to-head. Even if there are number one and number two in the world, the likelihood that those guys are going to be paired up together on Sunday to major, probably going to happen once a year, maybe. If you're lucky, you'll get that pairing. Like, to hell with them being together for the first two rounds. What would really put eyeballs on the TV is if Bryson and Brooks are final pairing on Sunday. Mm -hmm. That's what would get people to watch. Even if they're paired together on Sunday, if there's 10 strokes off the lead, nobody's going to care because they're not in it. Because ultimately, Brooks Kepka's not going to do anything to get in the way of Bryson or vice versa. They're not going to be trying to distract each other on the course or trying to keep the other one from scoring birdies. That's not going to happen. And that's the problem with trying to create rivalries in golf and why there have been instances of guys not liking each other. I mean, Tiger and Sergio is a famous one. Uh, Before that, Tom Watson and Gary Player weren't fond of one another. Nick Faldo and Sergio Garcia, they're guys who didn't like each other, but it never spilled over into an event. There's no... YouTube video that went viral uh, that has 20 million views because two guys were getting into a massive argument. The closest we've seen to it was freaking Keegan Bradley and uh, Angel Jimenez, 
who are arguing about somebody taking too long to hit a shot or Angel Jimenez got in the face of Keegan Bradley's caddy. Like Those are two irrelevant players in the grand scheme of things, and that's the closest we have to an on-course fight. And it wasn't a fight. It was two guys arguing. Like That's it. That's the most we've gotten. And now in 2021, in the age of social media, that's where these guys are kind of taking it to, is taking it to social media and basically establishing that they don't really like each other. And in the age of the PIP, which is this new player sort of interest uh, index where guys are going to be awarded, what's the what's the prize of it? I think it's $40 million that they're going to be given out. The player impact program is what it stands for. Like there's incentive to get attention on social media and to get people to talk about you. So if you feel like you can game the system, like which Brooks Kepka is clearly trying to do and Bryson seems to be all in on it as well, like there's there's reason enough to do that. I just think that, like, part of the issue here is it's not as simple as when you go to a rival football team, you're going to be hearing, you know, the boos and the different things from fans. And we know that in golf, it is very anti, I guess, kind of being rough with the golfers with your speech. And especially for certain guys, like we know, Bryson DeChambeau has gotten a bunch of people kicked out of events for just yelling Brooksy. Like, yeah, like it was, it was just last week at the Memorial um, at Jack's tournament. I think it was so, like 10 to 20 guys. Like, if he can't even handle that, imagine the fanfare at the event if they're playing together, the group that's going to be following them. They're going to be wanting to razz the golfers a little bit, right? He wouldn't be able to deal with that. No, he wouldn't. Um and I don't think like, the tour oh would gosh. allow it. I don't think the Can tour would allow it. Can you imagine how many people he would eject if they have to play together? I don't even think he would have to eject No, like, him. imagine that. Imagine if Bryson is like, you're gone, and Brooks is like, no, you're staying. You're here. Yeah, how would that work? I hate the, I, I hate the idea that players can get guys tossed. I guess LeBron got that chick tossed, but that's different when there's, like, somebody screaming, you know, in your face, and you're, like, actually holding a conversation with them. Because Brooks can do his damage when he's not on the course. Because the, think about the popularity that he has where he's like this sort of developed this like barstool sports type following and they already know what to do without doing it. Like it was the, the Pardon My Take podcast that was encouraging fans to go to the memorial and call Bryson Brooksy because there was one viral video of it happening and you could tell Bryson got upset. And so what they do? They sicked a bunch of people on him, and then it was happening left and right. And it's so funny, the polar opposite personalities, with Brooks being this sort of meathead, frat bro, into fashion and not caring. He kind of reminds me of Channing Tatum in 21 Jump Street. Yeah. Remember when they first pull up to school and that kid's like doing homework and he's like, can you guys be quiet? I'm trying to study. And he's like, look at him. He's trying. What a nerd. Like that's Brooks. Look at him. I can't believe you're actually trying to win this event. I'm just here. And Bryson is the polar opposite of seemingly lacking any self-awareness. He wears a paperboy cap for God's sake. <laughs> He brought out a protractor on the golf course. 
Actually, no. I think there's. I think there is a little bit of self awareness, but it's like a self awareness of. It's a bad. I am smarter than everybody, and I want to show it. It's this is working. Or, yeah, I'm it's better than everybody, and of, I want to show it. Of. No, you may not like my style, but it's unique, and that's good enough. Just to be different. And to his point, and he's probably one of the most five recognizable golfers on the planet right now. But do you think that has to do with his personality, or do you think it just has to do with him, the beef up? Because not a it's lot of all, people— But it's all wrapped up in one. Sort of, because, I mean, if you go back to— When did the beef up happen? It was, like, right during COVID, right? Like, he came back right at the yeah, start it started. Of, it started before COVID, but then he came back after right, COVID, like, holy— huge. And that was kind of like the, the coming out party, at least, I think, from a national perspective. I don't think that many people were talking about Bryson DeChambeau. Like— Whenever on a national sports show we get to one of these major weeks, he is like one of the leadoff players now. That wasn't happening before. He might have been mentioned as like, oh, this guy could win. This guy's pretty good. But it, I think because of the size, that was like the introduction. That was like the, oh, look at this guy. Now let's learn more about him and this interesting personality. But it's all about the beefcake, Bryson. You, you know where this all started was like two years ago when Bryson – Stood over a putt for like two minutes. <laughs> it was at a major, and then he blasted it past. He blasted <laughs> it like two feet past, and the video went viral. And then somebody asked Brooks Kepka about slow play because they knew he would comment on anything, and he said it's not that hard to hit a golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bryson was asked about it, and he said, "Well, you know, if he's got a problem with me, he can come say it to my face." He said this like after post round, and the next morning, on the practice screen, Burks Kev came no and way. said it to his face. Yeah, he came and said it to his face. He's like, "Yeah, I have a problem with you. I think you play too slow." And then it's just sort of spiraled from there. There was the ants incident where he tried to get relief yeah. from like an ant hill, mm-hmm. and then the next week, Brooks is out, and he j- joked with the rule officials like, "I think there's some ants on my ball." Like and it was just sort of these subtle digs that I think at first were genuine, but now they seem entirely contrived. Brooks has went out of his way to say that the media has made way too much of his friendship with Dustin Johnson. They tried to make it seem like those guys were best friends forever. He's like, we work out at the same gym, like that's it, and like people try to act like we're best friends. So that was then, but now with this forty million dollar incentive. Brooks is lapping the field. Like, there's no—if he's in first, it's whoever you think is in second is in second. Like, if it's Dustin Johnson, it's probably Bryson at this point. Tiger's still eligible? Yeah, probably, because social media mentions are a part of it. But I don't think anybody's coming close to Brooks Kepka. I think Tiger might still get it. Phil Mickelson, honestly. Phil, yeah, Phil will be up there, for sure. Guys who've already built up fan bases, because that's one thing. Right. In golf, you have to have the fan base built up, or at least the interest. And with Bryson, you can hate him, but he's still going to generate interest because of that. It's polarizing. Yeah, which is odd, because if you were to put those two guys together, and say, like, which one's the villain and which one's the hero, everybody would say, well, Brooks is the hero, Bryson's the villain. But in reality, it's like one of these guys is going out of his way to be— the nerd versus the jock. But that's it. One of them is actively being a douchebag, and we're like, (laughs) he's the good guy— and the other one, Bryson, who seems like an entirely pleasant, albeit somewhat annoying person to be around. Like, what is your problem with him in terms of like, oh, he's a jerk. He says like, he hasn't done anything to anyone. I think he made fun of Br- uh, Brooks's abs once. 
We should have just done a we should have just done a timeline of this. Feud. All right, this is what we need to do. I mean, we've already discussed how boxing is just becoming a celebrity sport. Yeah, just put them in the boxing ring. You know, USGA can't control that. Everybody wins. Ninety nine, ninety nine. It's either leading towards a boxing match or one of these celebrity golf tournaments with football players. I think it'll be Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and Brooks Koepka and Bryson DeChambeau. Like that's all. That's the new. That's the new climax of golf. Is like if you can get onto the, if you can get onto the payroll of one of these match events, then you've officially made it. All right, this is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. So there's been a, a rumor circulating this offseason that the Chiefs are going to use Chris Jones more at the defensive end spot. They get Jaron Reed, the D tackle from Seattle, so that would create more flexibility on the defensive line. If you go and get a guy like Jaron Reed, you plan on playing him. If you're going to play him, you're going to play him at the only position he can play, which is defensive tackle. Chris Jones, meanwhile, looks like he's going to be moved to defensive end. Chris Jones has been, I think, from year one, which was what? Five years ago? He was drafted in six years ago. He'll be going into his sixth season. Initially, it seemed like he was slotted to play defensive end, but... He settled into, obviously, very nicely the D-tackle role. There's part of me that says, okay, this is going to be exciting. He's going to be more just typical pass-rushing DN, getting after the quarterback. The sack number is going to be better. He's one of the best sack artists in the NFL. There's part of me that wonders, is he too big to play defensive end? I mean, he's 310 pounds, which is not prototypical size for a DN. Like, I just wonder... Is he lean or quick enough to play that spot as at as high of a level as he's playing to tackle? There's no question that I think he can be effective there. It's like, are you going to be lessening his impact by moving him to the end? Yeah, it's definitely possible, but I, I think it's worth trying. I mean, they've done it at least like during games. It's not a primary thing, but like there will be certain lineups where he gets kicked out to the outside and maybe it, it lessens effectiveness a little bit, but if... You know, moving him to the outside increases effectiveness overall on the defensive line, then it's worth it. And for a team that paid a lot of money on the defense, on the defensive front for last year's team, and to not really see a ton of production there, you got to try something to figure it out. Well, that opens up a spot for Reed and Derek Nottie, I would think, to play D tackle. It's a lot of size. It's a lot of size, and you're probably going to be really stout against the run because that's Maybe. one of the things that, I mean, that to me, I think about this as in terms of you're beefing up your run defense, but potentially sacrificing the ability to get after the quarterback. Yes and no, but like part of the issue there is that I think Jaron Reed, his pass rush numbers are better than his run stopping numbers. Chris Jones has never yeah, been like ten and a half two yeah, years ago. Chris Jones has never been like a good run stopper, so. Does that worry you at all? Because I know, like, you know, one of the jobs of a defensive end is to contain on the outside and make sure that you do not give up containment on the outside. With a guy like Chris Jones, who has struggled against the run, I do worry that you're going to be open to uh, maybe getting gashed a little bit on, like, outside runs or something to his side. I almost view this as better for the pass than it is the run, despite the size thing. But doesn't, I mean, the Chiefs have always been, at least in this modern formation, of the Chiefs, they've not been good against the run. So you think they could be worse? Because that would be concerning. No, I think it would be about the same, which is not good. 
Is it is it that bad though? Like it's not good in terms of where they rank in the NFL. No, no, I, mean. I know. But like, is it detrimental to them winning a Super Bowl? No, because we saw them win the Super Bowl two years ago with pretty much the same defense, and they weren't great against the run. On a, on a basic level, though, on a basic level, like the best defenses get after the quarterback. Mm-hmm. Nobody wins the Super Bowl because they were so stout against the run. Like that can be a part of right. it, but typically speaking. You're going to be a competitive team if you are constantly harassing the quarterback and disrupting plays in the backfield. And they were able to do that in the playoffs the year they won the Super Bowl, two years ago. Last year they didn't. Last year they didn't. They thought they could flip the switch because we didn't see the numbers in the regular season, but it was like, oh, they'll they'll flip the switch in the postseason just like they did the year before. You can't rely on that. And they didn't. And we didn't see it. Even, Even in the games they won, the pass rush wasn't really there. You know, Frank Clark never really got it figured out. Maybe some of those guys were dealing with injuries or it just wasn't their season. But you got to change something up because that might have been the biggest difference, honestly, between the defense last year and the one before it. The one before it in the playoffs was a good defense. It wasn't a great defense. It was a good enough defense. And they made timely plays. I think of the play where I think uh, it was Chris Jones like hit Jimmy Garoppolo and it forced an interception. There's another play late in the game in the Super Bowl where uh, I think like Chris Jones bats down a pass. And then, uh, you know, the D-line was making plays. Maybe part of it is because the Bucks kind of blew out the Chiefs, so you don't think of it this way, but I can't really think of a play that the D-line made where you were like, there we go, in the Super Bowl. No, Tom Brady had all day yeah. to throw. the entire. That was the storyline of the Super because Bowl. Because you've invested, what, a second-round pick in Derek Nottie or third-round pick, whatever he was. Um, you invested over $20 million in Chris Jones per year, over $20 yeah, million. Yeah, but say, like, it's Clark about the money year. you've invested more than mm-hmm. the draft equity that you've invested. You traded draft picks to go get. Frank Clark. And then you go out and, and get Jaron Reed this offseason. Like, there has been an emphasis on trying to bolster that defensive line for the purpose of getting after the quarterback because that was what you brought Frank Clark over from, from Seattle for. I mean, Jaron Reed had 10 and a half sacks two years ago in Seattle. Chris Jones, obviously, one of the most effective pass rushers in the league. So I would think any decision that you're making now is to bolster the ability to get after the QB. Nobody invests a ton of money in draft equity into being a run-stopping D. Tony, move that you're making, I would think would be behind the focus of furthering that agenda, mm-hmm. of becoming a better pass rushing team. But it makes sense too, right? If, if you're going to be this explosive offense, which the Chiefs are, you're going to be counting on the fact that, okay, we're going to get ahead in a lot of games. How do we finish them? you know, they're going to be passing the ball, trying to catch up. And so it's not just about, like, I do agree with you, you know, passing is more prevalent and stopping the quarterback is more prevalent, but it's doubled down, too, by your style of play. That was what partially made those Colts teams so great. It wasn't just the Peyton Manning offense. That was the number one part. But they also had, like, Robert Mathis and Dwight Freeney on the edge for when they were up 34-27 late in a game and the other team had to pass the ball with two minutes left to come back, you're going to get sacked. It's It's weird. It's weird, like imagining Chris Jones on the outside, which he's been, he's played on the outside, but 6'6", 3'10", going up, I mean, that's bigger than anybody else a tackle's going to have to deal with all season long. But is it quick enough? Does he have the the speed on the edge? He's not a speed rusher, he's going to be a power rusher, but uh, I'll be interested to see what the sack numbers do. I think, too, you're not going to look at this as a uniform thing. There's a very real chance first and second down Chris Jones play Jones plays at the D end, and then they have a special like pass rush package if it's third and medium, third and mm-hmm. long, 
where it's like, okay, if it's third and six or longer, Chris Jones is moving back to D-tackle. Jaron Reed is going to be next to him. We'll take Derek Naughty off the field, and then we'll take our two best pass rushing DNs, Frank Clark and whoever the other one is. Yeah, I mean, maybe. if I mean, what, what did Frank Clark have, six sacks last year? Yeah, I think if this works with Chris Jones, does it – maybe we're already there, but does it accelerate the timeline of Frank Clark's probably not going to be in Kansas yeah, City too long? I think I think – if you're ordering, like, if you're power ranking the positions that you need to be good at to win a Super Bowl or to compete for a Super Bowl, I think quarterback's number one. I think pass rusher's number two. The guy who passes the ball and then the guy who stops the guy from passing the ball. Three's probably wide receiver. Four's probably cornerback. Mm. Like, you just kind of go back and forth. The guy who passes the ball, the guy who stops him from passing. The yeah. guy who catches the pass, Offensive the guy who stops tackle. him. Yeah. Right. So... Being good at that position is something that the it's it's important, and the Chiefs have acknowledged that with the money and the resources that they've allocated to try and be competitive at that position. You're paying Frank Clark a lot of money to not give you a ton of production, and it's fine when he doesn't do anything during the regular season and then turns it on for the postseason and you win the Super Bowl. You say, that's why we paid you. But then if you don't do anything in the regular season— and then you don't do anything in the postseason, then all of a sudden the lack of regular season production becomes a bigger problem, even though it shouldn't be. Because if he would have done the same thing he did in year one and year two, we would have said, fine, if this is just who he's going to be, yeah. then you'll take it. But then when it doesn't happen, we sort of stretch the problem out and say, well, now you're just not a productive player ever. And that's a bit of an issue. Because imagine if Frank Clark would have had 14 sacks. Imagine if Frank Clark would have had 10 sacks in the regular season, because that's a nice number, right? It's double mm -hmm. digits. We would have said... Uh, yeah, he kind of he kind of didn't play well when it mattered, but he was really consistent throughout the regular season, and he was good in the postseason the year before, so we'll give him a pass. But it was just a bad season. Yeah. So now it does you, amplify the idea that maybe you need to make some changes. Yeah, and you see Justin Houston, who you let go to pay more money and trade draft picks for Frank Clark, who had more sacks last year. Hey, Justin Houston's still out there, by the way. Mm, go get him. So is uh, Melvin Ingram. Mm, so, get him, too. Yeah, get everybody, <laughs> right? If Brett Veach is such a wizard with the cap, then it shouldn't be that hard to figure out. All right, two hours down, one to go. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk.